Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities, from Kentucky Humanities, where we've been telling Kentucky stories for 45 years. Here is your host, Bill Goodman. Virginia Carter was the daring, creative, and innovative leader of Kentucky Humanities for 25 years. She left the council in 2013. During her time as executive director, she was responsible for many memorable contributions which continue to support the humanities and the work we do today. Virginia began the Chautauqua program in the early 1990s, began the publication of Kentucky Humanities Magazine in 1994, and in 2004 was instrumental in starting the Kentucky Humanities program Primetime Family Reading Time, our statewide literacy and learning program that is growing across the state. New Books for New Readers was also a Virginia Carter startup and the extraordinary Our Lincoln production in 2008 and 2009 caught the eyes and ears of both the state and the nation when it was presented at the Kennedy Center in Washington. She leaves quite a legacy and it's nice to have her on our Think Humanities podcast today. And Virginia, it's so good to see you again and thanks so much for taking time out uh, with still a, a busy and hectic schedule in your uh, your life now, but uh, we wanted to hear from you and kind of catch up on what you've been doing. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me, Bill. And I guess the best place to start would be some, um, some very um, easy questions about uh, your, your early life. We won't jump right into humanities um, uh, right off the bat because uh, that was something that uh, you spent so much of your time with, but you did so much uh, as a, a young person uh, here in Kentucky first and uh, going to school. And I did, I, I did find uh, somewhere, and I'm not exactly sure where I, I pulled this out, but it was a, it, it could have been um, the article that was in the National Endowment for the Humanities magazine when it uh, tells uh, all of us and the readers that in 1966, you worked as a car hop at the Starlight Drive-In restaurant in Lexington, and you did that in order to uh, make some money to go to Harvard that summer. That's true. Take me back to that time and and the summer that you spent at Harvard. Oh, my heavens. Well, uh, yes, I had, at the time, I thought that red brick universities were perhaps not up to the same standards as the Ivy League. And you didn't have to be a regular Harvard student to go to Harvard summer school. So I thought, well, I'll just go to Harvard and I'll take a couple of courses, uh, which I did, and found out that, yes, the professors were very good, but I'm really glad I had that experience because I came home with a new appreciation for the University of Kentucky, where you can walk wherever you want and there are opportunities to learn from equally wonderful professors. And best of all, it, it was friendly. Mm-hmm. It was Kentucky. Mm-hmm. And uh, most young people think of going elsewhere and getting other experiences. And I did that. But the more I went away, 
the more I had to be back at Kentucky. That was my ultimate goal. Did you know when you came um, back from Harvard and, and you entered uh, the university, uh, uh, archaeology has been your, your love and your life, um, other than the humanities, and, and of course uh, it is a, um, a humanity. Uh, uh, did, did you know right away as a freshman that you wanted to be an archaeologist? No, not at all. Uh, I took a freshman course and was absolutely fascinated with it, but I was also very involved in zoology, and I was an art student as well. And my problem, so to speak, was I wanted to learn everything. And long before I finished an undergraduate degree, I had thought, how am I possibly going to have just one major? I, I want to learn most of the disciplines that you've named as part of the humanities. I want it all. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, so I took lots of extra courses. But uh, it wasn't till I was a second-time graduate student that I really pursued archaeology. And for that matter, and, and the reason I did is because anthropology is so holistic. It takes into account all the other humanities disciplines. And so I thought, this is finally the place for me. Uh, when I started working for the Humanities Council, though, there had been very, very little attention to anthropology, much less archaeology. And so I thought, well, I'm going to make sure that it doesn't stay that way. Mm -hmm. And some of the best speakers we ever had in the Speakers Bureau and some of the uh, early exciting programs had to do with archaeology. And one thing that was especially important is that to be Kentucky archaeology reached back to the original Kentuckians. Uh, no one had ever said anything, and if they did, it was usually inaccurate, about Kentucky's first people. And I wanted the Kentucky humanities to include all Kentuckians, regardless of uh, time and regardless of place. And that seemed like uh, a natural addition. At one point, uh, did you did you think about teaching, um, making, um, uh, being a professor, uh, or or did you go the other route and you wanted to go to a dig? And and I'm sure you did plenty of that in your undergraduate. And no, you never did. <laughs> oh, I did some, but yeah, I, but I'm wanna. also a fearsome gardener, and <laughs> if I was supposed to dig ten centimeters before anyone knew it, I had gone. Two feet. Yeah. Uh, but no, I did spend some time on digs, but I was far better at the laboratory. And um, every th everything that I had studied, be it art, be it geology, everything at some point informed everything else that I was to do. And when I was an anthropology graduate student, I paid for my tuition by doing artwork. Mm. And I did, in fact, teach uh, 
archaeology, well, anthropology, mm -hmm. uh, cultural anthropology. Mm -hmm. um, and I also taught art history with my first graduate degree, not here at UK. Mm -hmm. But I kept getting, I kept thinking, these students are going to learn about this anyway. What about all the rest of the people out there? There has to be some way to bring the riches, and I always thought it was the riches, of all the knowledge on a college campus to everybody else who had never set foot on a college campus, and maybe even make them, those who were anxious about it, uh, comfortable in coming to a college campus so that young people uh, would be more encouraged to attend, a, say, a community college, but so that farmers who loved their family history just as much as anyone else would have some opportunity to experience a, a richer story and include their own. It's always important to have people have an opportunity to tell their own stories. Uh, I know you found this um, throughout your, your time as executive director, but we get, we uh, at uh, the Humanities Council get a terrific reception no matter where we go in the urban areas. But when we go to rural Kentucky, they open their arms and seem so appreciative of uh, just being there. And I know you found the same thing. Yes, because, because small towns, rural towns, seldom get the recognition that they deserve for what they have contributed to Kentucky's story. And they deserve that respect. And I think the Humanities Council has a proven record of delivering that honest uh, it, respect and interest. Mm -hmm. Yes. You um, were here briefly uh, in the beginning as an associate director, uh, handling uh, grants and, and doing what else besides that? And we'll, we'll explain the regranting process here in just, just a moment. But you, you had other, other duties as assigned before uh, you became executive director. So uh, take me back to those early days of... Uh, what did you, what did you perceive? What was the the NEH at that time, uh, the National Endowment for the Humanities, and and how did it begin to change in, in over the time that you were here? Especially, I would say in the first, uh, well, 1992 is when you started the Chautauqua program. So you became executive director in 80, was it 89? Yeah. So just again, take me back to that time period. Well. It was, it was a time in which the majority of the money supporting the Humanities Council was federal funding. And the bulk of that money was in turn given to community projects by way of grants. And the nature of the grants, the review of the grants, all 
had to do with Eddie H.'s idea of what was scholarship. Uh, at that time, for example, uh, community colleges were not considered quite up to the standards of grant recipients. And I would constantly be seeing who had the PhD and who didn't. Uh, and there was a lot of, there were a lot of rules, and yet the, the job of the board of directors was to review these applications for funding and in turn grant it out, and that it was up to people like me to make sure that the money was used as described. Back then, uh, some grants were as large as thirty to $50,000, uh, but the, the only source of money for those grants was federal. And as we began to see in the late 80s, uh, early 90s, the federal money was already shrinking. And so the vision was going to have to be what, what else can the Humanities Council do that will receive private support and what will sustain itself through time because clearly as much as we liked being able to support community organizations people aren't usually going to give you money to give it to someone else mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and did you see at that time were there other uh, councils around the United States that you interacted with uh, at a national conference or just, just becoming friends with someone um, that began to, to create another program uh, where private funding, foundation funding, sponsors would, would be necessary? Is that something that, that all councils began to move toward? It is not. Mm -hmm. uh, we... We are, we, I'm sorry, I always think of oh, myself as Oh, you part are, of, of course you are. Say, please use we, <laughs> please use the pronoun. Uh, we were one, and still are, of the few state humanities councils that did not ever receive state funding. Mm -hmm. And so the councils, uh, for example, Virginia and Nebraska, that received a good bit of state funding had an early opportunity to develop programs that were more suited to their populations and, well, plus they had a great deal more money. Uh, Kentucky never had any state money with a few rare grants for specific uh, projects and the the idea was looking around, are we going to continue just to do what we've always done with diminishing money, or are we going to be entrepreneurial? And it took some time, because it's, it's seemingly risky business to be entrepreneurial. But that's, that's the track we took. Some councils to this day remain principally granting organizations and feel very strongly that that is their mission uh, because the councils do vary. But certainly, 
not all councils have been particularly entrepreneurial, but some have done some some pretty interesting work uh, somewhere in between the two. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When, where did the idea for Chautauqua come from? Now, I answer my own question by saying a lot of people still ask me that question, and uh, I am familiar and was even uh, at the time that, that I was seeing Chautauqua performers from Kentucky Humanities. I was familiar with the New York program and the history of it and people that um, uh, travel up there every summer to, to, to uh, experience uh, the, the programs that they still uh, conduct. But uh, did, did that happen to come from, from that? Or did, did you, what's the genesis of, of the Kentucky Chautauqua program? Well, I wish I could say with certainty the state but there was a wonderful scholar named Clay Jenkinson who portrayed Thomas Jefferson as a one-person show. I think he was from Montana. He could have well been from Minnesota, but he participated in something called the Great Plains Chautauqua. And having the opportunity to experience Clay Jenkinson's uh, program, I was enthralled. The idea was basically based on the Chautauqua, New York, early public education. And that's that was the wonderful thing, it was public education. Uh, but the Great Plains folks were receiving some funding from the National Endowment to operate this great plague Chautauqua. But I knew from the beginning we could not duplicate what they were doing because they did a tent show Chautauqua and they would move from one community to the other only in the summer. And of course, if you think of the Great Plains, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. But they would go to a couple of communities per state, per season, set up the tents, and it would be a week-long program. They'd have a kind of a book fair on the side. And, and this was very, very attractive to the people in those states. But when I thought about Kentucky, I thought the cost alone, I costed out getting a semi to carry the chairs at the tents, uh, paying for the transportation, setting up all of this and staying in the same place for a week. Uh, I saw right away we couldn't possibly afford it. So the first thing we did was, okay, we will start Chautauqua for Kentucky's Bicentennial, and every county had a bicentennial, local bicentennial commission, or committee, as it may have been, and we will develop a troupe of Chautauqua presenters, and we will send for free two of those programs to every county in Kentucky 
during the summer of Kentucky's bicentennial from Memorial to Labor Day. And that is a seemingly impossible uh, jigsaw mm -hmm. puzzle oh, yeah. to work out. But thanks to Kathleen Poole, who had just started working for the council and who was a computer whiz. <laughs> you know, we didn't have Apple computers or anything. She still is, by the way. Yes. <laughs> in, in more ways than one. Yeah. Uh. We, we did, in fact, manage to schedule to, in every county, add, because the program was so popular, there were an additional 60 because people wanted more than they had received. Now, where these took place, that was up to the county to decide, but it was a big variety of places, which immediately showed how flexible the program could be because our Chautauquans didn't need even a proper stage. Uh, one program was in the middle of the street in Sadieville. <laughs> uh, it was ultimately deliverable and because the people of Kentucky responded so well to that. That is the model that we followed afterward. And although we thought it would only be for the bicentennial, the people would not let it rest. And so the council decided to continue Kentucky Chautauqua. Um, and then after a while, people said, well, this is so good, why aren't you sending it to the schools? And we said, well, all we need is a little money. Will you help us pay for it? And pretty soon, Kentucky Chautauqua was going to schools. And I think there is probably no venue that you could think of uh, where a Chautauqua hasn't taken place. And the other big difference, if I may, is that the Great Plains and the other folks that did Chautauqua looked at uh, nationally known characters. They wanted, for example, Herman Melville or you know, folks that had almost nothing to do with Kentucky, at least from the point of view of Kentuckians. And so we decided that Kentucky Chautauqua and the Chautauquans would have to tell Kentucky stories. And to my knowledge, we are the only Humanities Council with a Chautauqua-like program that ever stuck to the, the, the true story of our, mm -hmm. our state, our commonwealth. Who, who was your, um, put you on the spot here, who was your favorite uh, Chautauquan uh, back in the day that maybe we don't have uh, the performer um, in our current offering, but does somebody stand out? As, I mean, I, I've seen some of our current uh, right. performers who just are, are marvelous, and I've seen them perform before adults and children, and I know that... Um, that our beloved George McGee, uh, yes. Henry Clay, is still, although he played other characters uh, early on, is still performing. And I saw him recently before some school kids, and he just is is just magnificent. He is. Yeah. Uh, yes, he, because in part he brings his audience into mm -hmm. the program. 
I think the the person that I would be most grateful to would be Vic Heller Jr. Yeah. Uh, he he just he was a natural, and uh, it wasn't his first character. His first character was a Kentucky governor. Um, was, who, was it Shelby? Was it? Was it? No, okay. no. We later had I. Yeah. Uh, the one who was on the stump about the same time that Huey Long was on the stump, and. Uh, well, anyway, that's all right. We'll we'll, we'll look back at that. Please but anyway, do. He, he was he was marvelous and then at that. His second character yeah. was Irvin S. Cobb. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> he he just was the epitome of becoming uh, this person, and he loved it so. And of course, as the head of the uh, Legislative Research Commission, he knew lots of people and brought Chautauqua uh, to the General Assembly. He brought Chautauqua a lot of places that we might not have been otherwise. Uh, but as I say, I will always be grateful. Well, Ellen, uh, his wife, who's on our board now, will, will be, uh, I know she'll be pleased to hear you. Edwin Porchboro. Yeah, right. Yes, yes. yes. I've, heard, I've heard stories about that. Well, uh, what a marvelous program that, um, I, I don't know, uh, honestly, where we would be today. And, and one, of the, one of the things I try to, to say to people, most people know um, uh, the Chautauqua program from Kentucky Humanities. But with, uh, in our education system, with uh, history not being taught like it was when you and I were in school, and teachers really reaching out to, to, uh, to find uh, um, that they don't have that in their curriculum, uh, when, when our historical performers um, are in a classroom, it's, again, it's magic, and, and I think they appreciate it so much. Well, they do. In addition, I think it provides a lot of curriculum suggestions because because the students can then develop their own programs and the idea of putting together a Chautauqua program involves public speaking yes but it involves writing it involves historic research it involves research into other parts of that story other disciplines so to speak and that's about as across the curriculum as it gets. Mm -hmm. Well, in uh, fast forward to uh, 2008 and 2009, which I remember uh, quite well, as um, most people do, uh, I, I don't guess that um, in thinking about uh, talking with you today and reflecting on uh, our Lincoln, I, I don't imagine there will ever be a... Uh, a production of the magnitude uh, of our Lincoln, first in in uh, uh, Kentucky and then uh, at the Kennedy Center in, in Washington. And uh, I must ask, um, how in the world did did that come about? When when uh, you you could have very easily celebrated uh, Lincoln's life uh, with maybe just another performer or something on a small stage but this was this went way beyond that well but here's the thing i'm a kentuckian and i i love kentucky with like oh my heart and soul and i had some cousins who grew up 
in Illinois. <laughs> and they would visit in the summer and try to tell me that Lincoln was from Illinois. And they pointed to their license plates. And there was nothing I could say to them to change their minds. But the, the, when I learned that not Indiana, boyhood, not Illinois, adulthood, not Washington, no one was going to put Abraham Lincoln before the nation in what I thought was a proper way. And not to mention, yes, he is a Kentuckian, um, had given that the board, for reasons I will never understand, said, go for it. <laughs> um, it was just, it was just what we had to do. We just had to. And the Humanities Council received help. Of, it's, it wasn't just the money, which we didn't have, uh, the generosity of some really wonderful people. And, and Lee Todd, the president of the university at the time, was very supportive. And he's, and I won't start naming private donors because they, they were just marvelous. But it was also the people who could have charged us, oh, $10,000 for their hour and a half on the stage and charged us nothing or very, very little. It was, it was the contributions of Kentuckians many who lived in Kentucky, but many who lived in Washington or in New York or wherever it might have been, and they, they wanted to be part of this program. Was it without any doubt your, I don't want to say greatest accomplishment um, because you had so many, but, but was it the... the, the uh, as far as events are concerned, was it the one event that, um, that you said, I'll never top this? Yes, as hard as I tried <laughs> to think of something that would top it, uh, I didn't know how or what that would be, and that it would take the next leader of the Humanities Council to... Uh, uh, <laughs> to stand on the edge of that cliff <laughs> and just go for it and jump yeah, off. Yeah. Uh, no, it was, it, was, uh, it was thrilling, but it was also frightening. It was a huge risk. But as I say, there were so many people who said, yes, Kentucky has to do this. And I meet people pretty often who were there who say they have never been so proud of Kentucky in their lives. Yeah. Well, that just uh, goes to, uh, to underline uh, and to show that we as a, as a commonwealth need more of that. And I'm not talking about something as grand as that on, right. a, on a world stage. But uh, sometimes, uh, Virginia, you know, I, I think that we're in sort of a, um, a culvert that we need to, we're sort of in a, at a low point that we need to sort of reach up. We... we We've talked, uh, we talk a lot and watch uh, the educational system um, 
not be funded properly and there seems to be too much attention in some other areas of public life and we, we do need something to at times uh, build us up and make us uh, puff up a little yes. bit and feel proud about about being a Kentuckian and you know I I don't know if you're aware of the fact, and, and uh, we I haven't talked with people, although there is a podcast coming up with um, the U.S. Port Laureate, uh, Tracy Smith, who we brought to Kentucky uh, because we're the new center for the book, and uh, she was in in Bowling Green, Glasgow, and New Haven in rural Kentucky, and uh, so, something like that, even though the numbers were small in those uh, small towns, uh, it made us feel... Uh, very proud that we were able to be a small part of her coming to Kentucky when she could have chosen chosen many other places to go in the United States. So it's it's those kinds of events, and and um, Kentucky Humanities uh, can can do those things as you as you know because you did them all your your life and all your career. Well, Ed, as you you say, the center for the book, Kentucky is a writerly mm -hmm. state, and. There are so many people who have been inspired by the opportunity to meet successful writers who will tell them right away, it's a lot of work, but you have to, you have to just write, so get to work. You, um, you've been so, um, so eloquent in, in a lot of what you've uh, uh, stated uh, uh, what you've said, what you've written, uh, and I was I'm kind of rifling through some papers here, but I don't have it right here in front of in front of me. But it was uh, it happened to be um, something that um, it was when uh, the former uh, director um, a leech uh, uh, came, and and there were appearances, and he spent a lot of time here, and and he was on his. Uh, uh, he was on his civil discourse tour. Do you remember the exact? I, I wish I had that in front of me. But anyway, it had a, it had a title to it. Uh, but you said at that time that s civil discourse, uh, civil dialogue, uh, that words matter. Yes. Uh, and, and we have to continue to to talk about that and to promote that. Uh, don't you agree? Yes, words do matter. And he, he pointed out he pointed out very well that uh, words can shape every kind of feeling and can make peace or can make war. That words are not just things on paper or things that come out of your mouth. Words do matter. Uh, he said it in in many ways, it gave many examples, and they do. Uh, but one of the special things about the Humanities Council is to give people an opportunity to talk face-to-face. -face. And there aren't very many opportunities uh, when you look around. And, and in spite of what I hear all the time about texting to your 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 mother in the other room mm. that may be but i have seen the the joy on people's faces especially families when they have an opportunity to for example 
attend a Chautauqua and talk about it or any other of our programs and they t they begin to turn to their neighbor, the person who is sitting. They've never met that person before, perhaps, but they start a real conversation, and they are hungry. People are are so hungry for face to face communication. Uh, I think it's a myth that we have uh, become so technological that we don't even notice. I think we do notice. I think we do deeply yearn for those opportunities. And that's why uh, local county fairs and uh, gatherings of that 4th of July's, that's what it's all about. Everybody comes together and everybody is uh, at least agreeing on this one thing that they're proud that they're there. Mm -hmm. Well, um it's been marvelous spending this time with you and, and sort of uh, reviewing uh, your career here, but hearing you um, express such uh, what's such heartfelt, um, uh, rich, deep um, thoughts about uh, about what we do every single day and what a joy it is uh, to be here and and to uh, to look back at what you did and and what you left and and how. How proud we continue to be of you, and 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 how wonderful it is to have you as as someone to look up to. It it was it was for me, and I'm sure it is for you now. The best job on earth, and the opportunity to go to every one of our 120 counties, and meet people, and do it all for Kentucky. And in Kentucky, well, it just doesn't get any better, right? Thank you, Virginia. <laughs> You're welcome. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities and is a production of the University of Kentucky College of Arts and Sciences. This podcast was created at the Media Depot. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Thank you.